I train horses for a multitude of reasons, and I think, you know, the primary answer is that it fulfills something in me. From Digital Horsemanship, this is Finding the Feel. I'm your host, Caitlin Hurst. All right, we're back, season two, and this time I'm here with world champion reigning trainer and ranch riding leader and very <laughs> successful coach, Bud Lyon. Thank you. Most recently, the 2019 APHA world champion and junior reigning aboard Steady Joe, or Chief, by Little Joe Cash. So let's get into it, Bud. Why do you train horses? Oh, wow. Coming with a heavy hitter right off the bat. <laughs> um, I train horses for a multitude of reasons. And I think, you know, the primary answer is that it fulfills something in me. And yes, it's how I make my living. And it's how, you know, I so help support the, the livelihood and all those things. I do it because, you know, there's a part of me that's competitive and I enjoy the, enjoy the competitive aspect of it. There's a, a part of me that really enjoys coaching and seeing youth and, and non-pro riders achieve their goals and, and playing a part in that. Uh, there's a part of me that really enjoys seeing the progress of young horses develop, and it's very rewarding. I think those horses tend to grow very quickly in the beginning, and so it's there's a sense of instant gratification. There is a part of me that enjoys the the process of solving a puzzle. And so, you know, I tend to look at each horse as a puzzle and trying to find the answer to that puzzle. And sometimes that is a process that takes several years and sometimes you, you never solve the puzzle, but I enjoy that aspect of it. But I think intrinsically, you know, um, horses are good for the soul and ultimately they fill some sort of void within me that I just couldn't imagine doing. I, I could imagine having another line of work. I could never imagine not having horses at all. And so I think for me, ultimately, there's all these different pieces that I really receive gratification from. But at the end of the day, it's being able to work with the horses that makes it unique and makes it fulfilling. You mentioned a void. So personal question time. Okay. What is it about the horses? What are they filling in your, what, what kind of fulfillment do you get out of them? Well, I just think, I don't even know if I can articulate that. Um, but I think ultimately they give something to us as humans that is irreplaceable and you know, whether it's a connection or it's a life lesson or, you know, it's an experience, you know, and some experiences are not that great if we're being honest, you know, but there is something about working with the horses and being around them that is soothing on some levels. It's, you know, intricate on other level uh, levels. It's complex. You know, there are just things that you know, you get from being around these animals and working with them, training them, um, competing on them that I've yet to encounter in any other facet of my life. And I'm on record in other areas from having saying that, you know, most horse trainers I know are much better with horses than they are with people. And maybe that's true of myself as well. But I think whatever that dynamic is, whatever that 
connection is, it's it's unique to those of us who who do it for a living. It's unique to those of us who enjoy it as a hobby. And, you know, again, even if you can't articulate it, you understand what that connection is on some level. You feel it, even if you don't know exactly how to put it into words. Is there a specific horse maybe early in your career or your life that stands out as, as having a special connection? Well, I think there have been a lot of them. You know, when I was younger, I certainly had a horse that that impacted me quite a bit. And that horse was a mare named Lulu's Freckles, who was, you know, one of my youth uh, horses. And we were fortunate enough to go on and win a couple of world championships on that mare. And then, you know, we raised some babies out of her and those babies went on to do well. She, I think, had a huge impact in the arc of my career and probably the arc of my life as it pertains to horses. You know, it's easy to say that when you look back on it and you're like, well, you know, how much of that is tied to the success you had in the show pen? And there's probably some of that. But I think even before that or after that, there were just things about that mare that that I connected to. I have jokingly said with my wife that that if she were a human, she would be the same person as I was, you know, and I I don't know, uh, you know, how much of that is um, feasible, but she was the type of horse that wasn't necessarily a a very loving people person, you know, uh, kind of horse, but she always was ready to go to work and do her job. And she really just wanted you to leave her alone when you were done. You know, she didn't run to the stall door to greet you. She wasn't that kind of a horse. She was more of an introvert and I'm an introvert by nature. So maybe we connected on that level in some regard. But I think that when you tally up all those things, you know, personality wise, we clicked, you know, talent wise, she allowed me to grow and and take some steps and, and achieve some things that I might not otherwise have. You know, she taught me a lot and we finally had to put her down a few years ago, but she lived a long time and continued to teach me things uh, long after, you know, she was done showing or, or done raising babies. And so you can't discount that as I look at it. You know, I can't look at that and not mention that horse. There have been other horses that I have had the you know good fortune of being able to show and compete on and do well with. And those horses also taught me a lot. They taught me different lessons. And But this is the one that I think when you look back at it, for me at least, I say, if it hadn't been for that one, I don't know if things would have worked out the same way that they have. Is there a specific experience with that mare that stands out in your brain as having been like a catalyst to some kind of lesson that sticks with you? Well, I, you know, I think in some respect, when you have a horse like that, you know, the, for me, at least it was a metaphor for life in general. We, we didn't come from a lot of money per se. We weren't, you know, struggling, but you know, my parents were, they were making a living and, and they recognized that their son had an interest in this hobby and, um, you know, they wanted to do whatever they could to, 
uh, support their their kid and and give him an opportunity. But my folks weren't the the parents out there that had a lot of disposable income that were able to just write a check, you know. So that becomes relevant to my history because, you know, at the time I was riding with Todd Crawford. I was his youth kid. He was based in California. I was, you know, grew up in Southern California and, you know, we were shopping on a budget and we knew we needed a kind of a, something to step up to allow us to go be competitive. I had kind of had the horses, you know, the first reigning horse. And I had before that had kind of the the all-around horse who good horse for me, but wasn't going to be the winner at anything. And so, you know, my folks were hoping to find something that would allow us to be a little bit more competitive. And Todd had known of this mare. She had for a brief period of time been in his barn. And um, at the time we bought her, she was just living in the owner's backyard and he really wasn't doing much with her. You know, he, he just kind of rode her around in his backyard. He didn't show reining horses at all. Um, you know, he was really uh, more interested in, in kind of the cutting and she was kind of bred that way. I think she had been given to him by a friend of his. So when you look back on it like that and you're like, wow, that there was really not a whole lot to go on there other than, you know, we trusted Todd and, and Todd had a good feeling about it. And I remember we went to try this mare and it was pitch black. It was like, you know, after my folks got off work one evening in the middle of the week and, you know, we're out there riding around under the old like street light or whatever. And, and we got to, you know, walk, trot, lope a little. And then, you know, that was kind of all we got. And Todd said, yeah, you know, I think it's going to work. And, I remember, you know, my dad saying, well, how do you know? And, and I remember Todd said, well, let me put it this way. If you don't buy her, I'm going to find somebody else to buy her. And so, you know, we, we ended up getting the deal done. And, and at the time, I think, you know, it was something around $10,000, which is a lot of money to a lot of people. But when you compare it to some of these prices that you hear about today, you know, it's not nearly as much, but it, it was a lot of money to us at the time and, and still would be to me. But, you know, we were, we were fortunate to be able to kind of scrape it together and get this horse bought. And so then from there, you know, we're working towards this goal and growing up in California, the... NRHA stuff was there, but it wasn't quite as prevalent as it is now. So a lot of the riders that I knew, you know, we were more, we were frequenting the AQHA shows a lot more. And so for me, the AQHA Youth World Championship show was the crowning achievement. That's what we were trying to do. You know, that's where we're trying to get. That's where we want to be. You know, we're working towards that and we're on our way. And then all of a sudden that mare gets hurt and tears a tendon, you know, has to have like a year off. So you have these big highs and lows, you know, which at the time, you know, I'm like 15 years old and, you know, you, you're pained by, <laughs> by those kind of moments. Looking back on it, you're like, well, it's kind of a metaphor for life. You know, I mean, you finally get one, you know, find one that you think you can be successful on. Everything's going in the right direction. And all of a sudden you have an unexpected setback, you know, a year goes by, you know, the mare sound again, we go back to showing and, you know, next thing we know we're qualified, uh, you know, we're going to the to the Youth World Championship show and, um, you know, we get there and things just kind of clicked. And, you know, we ended up, um, you know, the Reserve World Championship that year 
And I think I was second by like a half a point or a point or something like that. But by then, you know, it's my senior year of, of end of my senior year of high school, beginning of my freshman year of college. I know I'm getting ready to go off to school. I got a little sister who likes the horses as well. Mom and dad have made it pretty clear, you know, you're going to college next chapter. You know, your sister's going to get to show the horse, you know. And, you know, I begrudgingly accepted all that. But I also kind of felt like, you know, there's a little unfinished business here, you know, like it was so close to, you know, achieving that, you know, world championship. And, you know, we were, you know, fortunate enough to be reserve and that's great. But there were just something missing that felt like we had some unfinished business. And, um, you know, my sister showed the next year and then started to develop some other hobbies and interests. And my sophomore year of college, I get the opportunity to go back and, and show that mare. And this time it's at the, you know, AQHA world championship show in Oklahoma city. And I'm an amateur. And at this point, mom and dad got a horse, you know, in training, they got a kid in college, they got one getting ready to go to college, <laughs> you know, we're struggling with the finances at home, you know, um, all that stuff, but, you know, managed to make it all work, uh, somehow and getting help with from Don Murphy at this point in my career. And, Don's living in California and he, he's coaching me up. We get to the world show that year and, um, you know, just fortunate enough to be the, the world champion in amateur reigning on that mare and people are coming up and they're making offers and trying to buy her and it's a lot more money than what we paid for. Her. And so there's that kind of pressure. And ultimately my parents kind of left it up to me and probably selfishly, I kept her <laughs> and, uh, you know, we started breeding her and, and raising babies out of her and we got to have some success with her babies and we got to sell some for some nice prices and that helped me kind of build my business eventually. And I was able to put that money, invest that money into my business and my career. And so, you know, to circle back around to your, your question, I think that mare, we, we had some ups and downs along the way and there were some struggles, you know, with injuries and finances and frustration and all these things. But ultimately she provided way more for me than I did for her. And I think, you know, uh, at this point now I'm 41, getting ready to be 42 years old. You can look back on that with perspective and you can say, man, like, everything fell into place and you were so lucky in not just to have been able to, you know, achieve some of the things that you did and to be able to use that as a, as a vehicle to jumpstart your, your profession and your career, but also to be able to say, you know, some of the experiences that you were able to learn from provided you sort of the playbook to look back on and, and say, okay, I've already been there and done that. I understand. I can relate to this. She taught me that, or this experience gave me that, and now we can move forward. And, and I've already sort of had that experience. So, so when you went when you returned to the world show, you went to the AQHYA show, world show, and then a couple of years later after your sister was done showing her, you went back for that amateur championship title. Correct. What do you think changed about you as a writer and or as a showman between those couple of years? Well, it, they say that, you know, experience is, is priceless. Uh, I think you pay for it with your youth, and I know I did. Um, I made a lot of childish mistakes, uh, when I was a kid, but what do you um, think some of those are? Um, you know, I mean, it was a lack of maturity on, on some level, you know, when I got to the youth world in 96, I really, it was my first time to show there. I had always, 
you know, I had been to the youth world before I had seen it. I had uh, experienced trying to qualify for it or getting qualified and not being able to go, but I'd never had the opportunity to go and show there. So the first time I got to show there was my last opportunity to show there. And there is something about that show you know, and whether maybe it's in the title when it says world championship and you're given a trophy and a buckle and a title to these kids, you know, I have seen much more experienced kids than I was at the time go to that show and not have the performance that they were used to having. And I think a lot of it is psychosomatic. I mean, I, I think that you get in your own head or you, as a kid, you know, maybe if you haven't had the opportunity to, to be in those high pressure situations, um, or you haven't been exposed to those environments, I think that, you know, it can be overwhelming. And I know it probably was for me. Did I have the best horse at the youth world in 96? I don't know about that. Did I have the run I was capable of having? No, I can't say I did. And probably a lot of that was nerves and inexperience, you know, by the time I got back to the AQHA World Show in 98. You know, I was a couple of years older. I'm not sure I was any wiser, but I was a few years older. I, you know, had that experience. I hopefully learned from that experience. And I think that ultimately, you know, I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder going into that horse show thinking, okay, I maybe let it slip through my fingers the first time you know, this time, uh, I don't want to have that same experience again. And we were fortunate enough to, to end up the winners that year. And I didn't know if that was ever going to come around again. I really didn't know what was in store for me going forward in regards to the horses at that point. I can't say that I necessarily thought I was going to make a career out of it, you know? So to be quite honest, I went home from that horse show and I don't think I swung another leg over a horse for probably two or three years after that. And I think that ultimately that little break in between just allowed me to understand that, you know, sometimes those experiences are singular and they don't present themselves very often. So, you know, if uh, at least in my situation, you know, there was no telling if I was going to get that opportunity ever again. Who knew if the horse was going to stay sound? Who knew if the horse was even going to be in our possession? Who knew if college was going to uh, prevent me from being able to show ever again. You know, there were, there were things that were certainly unknown. And I think part of me felt like even if I don't end up the winner, I cannot, you know, let the pressure get to me. I can't be overwhelmed by the moment. And, um, you know, we, we have to make sure that we're as prepared as we can be and, and we take full advantage of the moment and the opportunity. So you coach some youth kids now. Mm-hmm. How do you help translate that in your coaching? I'm sure they go through the same exact thing. For sure. You know, youth riders or any rider is uh, interesting because they all respond differently. And I think that, you know, some riders are, are visual learners, some are auditory, some can really take a lot of pressure, some can't, um, some require pressure in order to thrive and others tend to be less inclined to be successful under those circumstances. So what we try to do in my program is tailor the coaching to the individual. And, you know, I've had youth riders who were very inexperienced 
and could be easily overwhelmed in a situation like we described, um, or even just at your, you know, your weekend show because of their lack of experience and because they just haven't been exposed to those situations before. Um, I have other riders that have been competing on horses since they were little bitty kids and or perhaps they do other organized sports and activities which are competitive whether you know it be soccer or football or cheer or whatever that is those students are you know sometimes used to you know a a different style of coaching and uh, they they thrive under that situation I think it's about keeping it in perspective for those riders and you know knowing when to push and when to back off a little bit I think some of my more inexperienced riders, you know, occasionally get caught up in how I'm saying it instead of what I'm saying. And they're afraid that I'm mad at them or that they're in trouble for something, which is certainly not the case, you know, uh, and you have to, you know, kind of keep that in mind. That's a lot like horse training in that respect, that each horse is an individual and they respond differently. You can't train them all the same way. And I find that to be the case with coaching um, any non-pro rider, specifically the youth riders. But there are, I've had students in my program who, you know, if if they were practicing and it was good, but not up to their full potential, and I, you know, said, well, that's good. Can you give me a little bit more? I just got average. And but if I really set the bar higher and pushed and prodded and cajoled and expected more of them, then I got greatness. And conversely, I've had some riders who, you know, they needed to hear nothing but positive reinforcement and they needed to know that it was okay, that what they were doing was they were on the right track. You know, you end up sometimes being more of a life coach, I think, than you do an equestrian coach. And so, you know, you find that a lot of these kids, um, you know, they all want to do well and they all want to please and and meet expectations and all that stuff. And when it doesn't go well, I think you have to be there to remind them, you know, you have to keep it in perspective. And this is, uh, this is what we're doing, but it doesn't define who you are. And I think that's the most important thing when it comes to the kids is, you know, whether they win or whether they, you know, uh, don't win and they're dejected, you know, you have to remind them that, Hey, listen, this is a hobby and then we want you to do well. We're going to do everything we can to support you and to help you achieve your goals. But at the end of the day, you know, if for some reason it doesn't work out or it doesn't come to fruition, you got your whole life ahead of you and, and there are going to be, you know, more important things than the fact that, you know, we didn't win the horse show this weekend. Right. Something that I think takes some of us longer to learn. <laughs> I'm still trying others. to learn it some days. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's go to a specific scenario then. So say you're at a horse show and you're coaching a youth and you're in the practice pin and, and you notice they're getting nervous, a little overwhelmed. Maybe the wheels are starting to, to come off a little bit. What do you do? How do you help them refocus? Well, I think at that point, you know, what I try to do is slow things down a little bit, keep things in perspective, um, you know, lighten the moment or, or you know, make light uh, of, of something or find a way to sort of lighten the mood a little bit. Anything I can to provide a little levity, you know, to the situation. 
it's easy to get caught up in the moment. It's easy to get frustrated. Uh, you know, that happens to open riders as well. That's not unique to youth kids or, or non-pro riders. And particularly when you have horses who have their good days and bad days or, you know, uh, aren't always on the same page with you, you know, and that seems to, to show up sometimes when it's most inconvenient. You're going to have those those moments where it's important to be able to read that situation as a coach and and step in and say, hey, like, you know, relax a little bit. Listen, it's just a horse show. You know, there's there's a billion people in China who couldn't care less, you know, or couldn't care, don't know that we're, what we're doing. You know, it's you got to remember that slow it down, take a deep breath for a second, you know, just relax. Horses always seem to feed off the energy that the rider's putting out. And so, you know, whether it's um, anxiety or frustration, it's always amplified in the horse's performance, I feel like. And so trying to strike that balance and trying to, you know, remind those those riders that this is temporary it's not going to last forever just relax for a second back off take you know let's let's reassess the situation slow things down quit trying to make it happen and let it happen you you know if you are around me long enough when i'm coaching you'll probably hear me say that a lot you know um i i think sometimes you know it gets to that situation where you know they're five horses away from going into the show pen and those riders don't feel like that horse is performing as well as it can and they're just trying to to force it and make it happen and that's a lot of times where i'm famous for saying you know hey quit trying to make it happen just let it happen just allow it to happen and if it doesn't then we'll worry about it so it's just important to be able to i think to read people a little bit read the horses and read the situation in practice that letting it happen what does that look like well it's easy to say hard to do you know i mean it's i, I think as a specific example, you know, I, if I've got a horse and rider that are running and, and stopping in the raining and that rider doesn't trust that horse or, you know, maybe the nerves are starting to build a little bit or maybe there's some frustration because that, you know, horse isn't having its best day or maybe the rider's not having its best day. You know, you see that rider run down there and not trust that horse and want to pull a little hard or a little quick or a little too much or maybe kind of throw their upper body back or jump at that horse a little bit, trying to make that horse get into the ground and, you know, be as physical and give as much effort as they know it's capable of. And a lot of times uh, that's so counterproductive because it throws a horse's timing off. It throws a horse's balance off. And those are key components that are often overlooked when it comes to, you know, running and stopping in the raining. So if you can get your rider to just relax a little bit and go down there with confidence and give that horse a clear communication, clear signal to perform the stop and allow them to go to the ground instead of trying to make them go to the ground, then that horse is able to find its rhythm, find it, find that sweet spot when it goes to the ground a lot easier. And, you know, if it doesn't work, then you can always go back to, you know, being a little bit more aggressive if need be. But oftentimes I feel like the problem becomes, you know, the rider gets tense, you know, they feel like they have to make it happen. And instead of just being patient, staying relaxed in the saddle and allowing it to happen. Do you feel like you still go through that sometimes? Oh, all the time. <laughs> yeah, all the time. I mean, there, there are so many times where, you know, I, 
I get done riding a horse, you know, and I'm like, geez, what am I doing today? Like, I feel like I couldn't train a stick horse today, you know? And, <laughs> and you know, when I take a minute to, to gain some perspective, I'm like, you know, I think I'm just trying to make it happen too much. And I need to allow this horse the opportunity to do it for me instead of me trying to do it for them. And, you know, if they don't, take advantage of that opportunity, you know, then we're just going to allow them to make the mistake and use it as an educational opportunity to show them what they should have done. And then we'll go back and try it again, you know? And so I'm not immune from that either. I, I would venture to guess that a lot of trainers are the same way. You know, I mean, I've watched those guys that are so much more successful than I am in the reigning. And, you know, some of those guys have been on your podcast and, you know, they don't, seem like they ever have a bad day when I watch them, <laughs> but I'm guessing if you ask them, you know, uh, in, in a moment of true honesty, they would admit to you that there's times where they shake their head and they're frustrated and, you know, they need to take a step back as well. So, uh, I don't think it's any different for the open riders. I, um, you know, I, I think some of those guys are way more talented than I am and they're, you know, um, it comes way more naturally for them maybe than it does for me. But uh, I hope at least that I'm not alone in that fact that everybody has that those moments where they're like, geez, like I, I got to like take a step back and either develop a new game plan or, you know, rethink this a little bit because this just doesn't feel like it's working the way it's supposed to. Do you make a habit of that process of reflection? Is that something you kind of work into what you do on a daily basis? Well, I think... All good horse trainers are perfectionists on some level, and I think that that probably is true not only of myself but of of all my peers. Um, and I don't know if every day I go home and I, you know, analyze it, but I can tell you that subconsciously, I think I'm always evaluating the horse or the situation or myself. I'm most critical of myself to a fault probably, but uh, I can tell you without exclusion, every horse show I go to, when I come home from that horse show, I do a sort of self-analysis of you know, the experience and say, what did I do well? What could I have done better? What do I need to do differently next time? And whether that's the preparation, the execution, the competitive strategy, you know, every horse that I show, you know, I have a game plan going into that horse show and we're going to try to execute that game plan to the best of our ability. And whether it works or it doesn't work, you know, uh, when we're done showing and, you know, whether it's on the drive home or when we get back home or maybe we're still at the horse show, you know, there's going to be some self-reflection, you know, on my part. And I'm going to ask myself, did this work? If yes, can we replicate it? If no, what do we need to do differently next time? And I think at home that goes on as well. I'm not sure it's quite as, you know, scheduled as maybe it is, you know, when we're, we're coming off the horse shows, but I think at home, you know, my brain is always running. And, um, so the interesting thing about being a horse trainer and having your own business is that, you know, when you're done riding, your day's not over. So you come home and you continue to think about it, or you continue to, you know, work on the business aspects of it. But, you know, for me, it's hard for me to turn it off. And I think that, you know, I have to be, I, I have to actually 
make it a point to try not to think about the horses sometimes to avoid burnout, you know, but I think that the loop is always running. And for me, you know, there's always this sort of uh, calibration, like, are we where are we at the point we need to be at for this stage of this horse's training or am I doing my job, you know, as well as it can be done, you know, are there things that I'm not thinking about? And, uh, I'm a big fan of going and riding with other trainers and, you know, to gain a little perspective, uh, certainly, I think there are more than one way to do things in in uh, this industry, and I think you know it's constantly evolving. And so I think that you, it's important to be able to to stay on top of that, and, and um, you know to be able to get some feedback from a fresh set of eyes. So the answer is yes, you know, but I don't know that it's always a conscious yes. I think sometimes it's just a matter of that's going on on some level, no matter what. And then there are certain times where we're consciously making a point to spend some time to be like, okay, what happened? How can we improve upon it? How can we maintain it? Do we need to go home and deconstruct and reconstruct those type of things? So I I can't speak for everybody else, but I can tell you that that's how it seems to happen for me. To the point of everything evolving and there being more than one way to do something. Is there something over the last few years where you feel like your perspective has shifted or your way of approaching it? Well, I think that there's no way that you can be complacent and say that whatever I've done is working and, you know, that's kind of going to be the end all be all. And that's how we're going to do it from now on going forward. I just think that would be so short-sighted, especially as quickly as things like the reining and the ranch riding are evolving. I think that, you know, it would be a grave mistake to, for anybody to feel like they have it figured out. And I think the reining has come so far in the last 15 years, you know, that by my you know, observation. And I think the ranch riding has evolved so quickly in the last five years that I think if, you know, you're complacent and you think that what you're doing is going to work forever, I think that you're going to be in trouble one day when you look up. Now, there are certainly some fundamentals that I don't think ever change. And, and I'm a big fan of, of sound uh, horsemanship and those principles, uh, you know, I, I don't think ever go away. But I also think that this is a game of nuances and the nuances are what are continuing to evolve. And you, you really would be wise as a competitor, um, you know, or an exhibitor to, to try to stay on top of that and stay ahead of that. To where you, those practices about sound horsemanship, can you tell us a little bit about that? Where do you think good horsemanship begins? Oh, uh, I think that good horsemanship uh, is something that goes back a long time. Um, and there, for my stamp, from my standpoint, I like to tap a lot of those older trainers who I really respect for, you know, those kind of principles. I think those guys were instrumental in laying the foundation. You know, I personally think we've gotten away from that a little bit um, these days. I think that um, we've got some amazing horsemen out there and we've got some amazing exhibitors and showmen. I feel like, you know, sometimes 
guys can be a good showman without being a good horseman per se. And that's not a knock on anybody. I, it's just an observation. But I think that, you know, to me, the principles of good horsemanship are doing the right thing by the horse first and foremost. And when it comes to the technical training part of it, to me, good horsemanship means number one, I have all the different parts that I can manipulate and that I can move around and that I've got collection and softness. I've got, you know, uh, elevation of the back and shoulders. I've got lateral movement. I've got forward motion when I need it. I've got responsiveness. You know, I have a horse who has a willing attitude to the best of, you know, of our ability. We've got, you know, horses that are quiet and gentle. I, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of people on some level confuse a broke horse and a gentle horse. And to me, those are, that's an important distinction. I think that you can have a lot of horses that are gentle, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily quote unquote broke. To me, a broke horse is a horse that I can put anybody on and I can tell them what I want them to try to accomplish and they can go out there and follow my instructions and get that horse to perform the task at hand. I think when you have a gentle horse, it may be quiet and any rider could get on and it can go around, but that doesn't mean that you can do the lead change or that you can execute a set of spins or that you can run and stop, or you can do a downward transition in the ranch riding, or you can, you know, um, you know, side pass. These are all the core tenets of what I think good horsemanship is. And, you know, there are some horses that are certainly gentle, but they're, they're not necessarily broke by my definition. I think, if we can, you know, I remember I used to have a mentor who used to say, if you can put a little kid or a little old lady on it and they can go around, then you're well on your way. And so I try to keep that in mind when we're making horses. I mean, most of the horses that come through my training program are eventually at some point going to go on to be a non-pro horse, whether it's for a youth kid or an amateur or a non-pro rider. You know, I've had very few horses in my program that from the day they got here to the day they left, um, or the, or excuse me, the, you know, the last day of their, their showing career were only open horses. You know, I've had a few, but the majority of them eventually are going to go on to be a non-pro horse, a youth kid's horse. And so we approach our training philosophy with that in mind is that, yes, we if this horse has the talent and ability to be an open horse and be competitive at that level, then, you know, we certainly are going to tap into that to the best of our ability. But ultimately, most of these are going to go on to be a horse for a non-pro rider. And those non-pro riders might not always have the same skill set as the open riders do. So you better have that thing broke. It can't just be gentle. It better be broke. And um, to us, that's that's how we approach it. How do you make a broke horse? And can any horse be that way? Well, I don't know that any horse can be can go on to be a non-pro horse. Um, there's certainly some that are more suited than others. Uh, I think for myself, it in our program, it comes down to instilling those fundamentals. You know, making sure that you have 
the, you know, all those things that we talked about, you know, where you can, you know, move the horse laterally, you can move the shoulder around, you can move the hip around, you can have collection and, you know, roundness and, and softness in the face and all those things. But then at the end of the day, does that mean that it can go, that it's suited for a non-pro? And I think we're big on discipline and, and manners and things like that. And making sure that those horses have a little bit of of life experience, which by that, I mean, they don't just go from the stall to the arena and back to the stall that, you know, occasionally, even if it's a reigning horse, you know, we're going to go maybe walk or trot over the logs for the ranch riding, or maybe, um, occasionally we're going to go out into the pasture and ride around out in the pasture. We want those horses to be quiet and gentle, and we want them to be respectful. We also want to make sure that they've seen some things and that in an age of specialization that they aren't just doing this one thing, that you still can use that horse for other things. And I think that's part of what's allowed us to be successful in the ranch riding is that, you know, we've been able to take some of these reining horses and cross them over into the ranch riding, and they had a great foundation to start with, but they were also able to to go do these other events. And, you know, um, I think that, you know, you have to make sure that you're creating a horse that is sensitive enough to perform the maneuvers, but not so quick and, and sensitive enough that, you know, a rider who is, has a different skill set is going to be intimidated or scared or nervous about a horse that can perform like that. So we want one that can perform the maneuvers at a high degree of difficulty, but also is patient and disciplined enough to wait and forgiving enough to allow someone to make a mistake. And I think that if you can walk that tightrope and and you have the horses that, you know, can be both, then I think you have a horse that is a great non-pro horse candidate, you know, and um, that can still be successful in the open stuff as well. Thank you for listening to another episode of Finding the Feel. Don't forget to connect with us on Facebook to join the conversation. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app to catch the next episode. And if you've enjoyed this one, please share with a friend. It's very much appreciated. Until next time.